Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm still not Jordan Rubin. One of these days, one of these days, David. That we all want to be Jordan when we grow up. Uh, no, I'm David Schultz. I'm the producer of this podcast. Jordan, of course, is still out on paternity leave. Jordan, if you're listening, and I know you're not, uh, hi, how's it going? Kimberly, uh, we have a lot to talk about this week uh, and some pretty disturbing, dark stuff. Um, let's just get right into it. Uh, there was a pretty scary incident at uh, Justice Kavanaugh's home this week. Uh, Can you tell me what we know about that and what the latest is? Sure. So shortly after the Supreme Court had issued opinions on Wednesday, uh, news began trickling out that earlier uh, in the wee hours of the morning, a 26-year-old man from California named Nicholas Roski had been arrested outside of Justice Kavanaugh's home. And um, as the day kind of uh, continued on, we actually got criminal complaint from the DOJ, which has charged uh, Mr. Roski with attempted murder. Uh, so, you know, the complaint lays out kind of um, what happened. Apparently, you know, he was upset by the leaked draft opinion in the Mississippi abortion case and the school shooting out of Texas. So he flew from California, uh, took a cab to Justice Kavanaugh's house. He brought with him um, burglary tools, weapons, including a gun. Um, and one really interesting detail. He brought with him a pair of boots that were padded on the outside so that he could sneak around, well, presumably so that he could sneak around quietly. He later did tell officials that he had intended to uh, kill Justice Kavanaugh and then kill himself. But the justices have been under round-the-clock security since the April leak. And so, you know, we've seen marshals uh, outside of their house and apparently Roski saw two marshals and turned around and then called the cops to turn himself in. Uh, so a couple of is- interesting issues there um, with regard to the attempted murder charge, but it did come out really quickly, and it seems like the DOJ is really taking this one seriously um, given kind of all the really chilling details that, that we know of right now. For sure. Uh, and, you know, it's I'm glad that it ended the way it did, but, uh, yeah, it could have been a, a really awful situation. Um, so, Kimberly, you know, I don't want to get into the details of, you know, why this happened or why this person, you know, decided to do what he did. I want to get into looking forward. And this is something that we talked about um, before we started rolling. The Supreme Court has uh, a opinion that it's going to issue in a Second Amendment case. uh, And it's widely believed that the uh, opinion will strengthen uh, gun rights in the country. I have to imagine that the court is not super eager to issue that opinion right now, given uh, what just happened this week and also the school shooting in Texas and the other mass shooting in New York. Is it possible that they might decide, you know what, we don't want to do this right now. We need some more briefing on this. Let's kick this to the next term and rehear the case with Justice Jackson. Is that at all a possibility? I mean, uh, we joked about this, but um, if you ask if anything is a possibility these days, I'm just going to say yes, because who would have foreseen all of this stuff that's happening? But I wonder to what end that would really you know, be serving, because this is an issue, this idea of concealed carry and you know, what states can do to really restrict that, if they can do very much. It's an issue that the justices have been trying to get up for a really long time, and there's a pretty uh, noisy uh, 
a number of them who have continuously written when the court has refused to take this up. I think it would be hard to convince those justices to kick this, uh, you know, down the walkway any longer. Um, I think, though, you know, there does seem to be this unease with, you know, putting out an opinion like this when we have these really big major events happening and only, you know, it's only going to serve to bring more scrutiny on the Supreme Court. The justices say they don't consider stuff like that, but it's hard to imagine they're not thinking about it. Um, although, as my colleague Lydia Wheeler wrote um, in a story that we did together a couple weeks ago, if the Supreme Court is going to wait for there not to be a kind of a shooting incident that's in the national uh, spotlight, then it's never going to issue a Second Amendment case because, yeah. you know, these things do happen. Of course, you know, as you said, there is there may be a better time, but there's never going to be a perfect time. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much happening right now at the Supreme Court that there that means there are a lot of cases that uh, sort of go under the radar. And uh, we're going to be talking about a few of those cases with our guests today. Can you set that up for us? Uh, what are these cases we're going to be talking about and and um, who is our guest? Right. So the Supreme Court this week had two opinion days where it issued four opinions. The one we got on Wednesday before all this news about Kavanaugh is one of these cases, I think, that in any other term might have gotten more attention, but is definitely um, flying under the radar. And, and that's because it's a, it has to do with accountability and holding federal officials accountable, which, of course, has been, you know, uh, you know, a major theme in politics over the last two years. Uh, and this case kind of continues the Supreme Court's push to make it harder to hold federal officials accountable. Uh, so this case is Egbert versus Boulay. It's what I'm going to be calling a 6-3 opinion and what our guests also calls a 6-3 opinion. Um, and but, so, but it sounds like some people might not. Well, you know, it's one of these cases that had two questions. And so uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent, which was joined by Breyer and Kagan, is styled as a concurring in part and dissenting in part. But the whole meat of the issue was really about the part they dissented. So um, to explain that a little bit more, we're going to bring on our guest, Athul Acharya is the founder of Public Accountability, a nonprofit uh, that works uh, to hold federal and state officials accountable, including on issues like at issue here in the Egbert case, Bivens claims, um, and also qualified immunities. I guess the first question I have for you is how do you count this case? Do you think of it as a unanimous case? Are you thinking of it as a 6-3 case? Because there are really kind of two questions that the court uh, split on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely 6-3. Um, it's true that Justice Sotomayor said she concurred based on existing precedent um, in the uh, in the First Amendment question. Uh, but I think that was really driven by two things. One, the, the liberal uh, opinion in Dobbs is going to lean very heavily on precedent. Um, and so I don't think I don't think she felt comfortable um, saying that, you know, the Ziegler was wrongly decided that about that, that Hernandez was wrongly decided and overthrowing the whole firmament of of new Bivens in that opinion. But the the meat of, of both opinions is really on the Fourth Amendment question. Um, and there, you know, very much 6-3, she excoriates the majority for overthrowing precedent themselves. Right. So uh, I guess before we get into, uh, you know, the, the Fourth Amendment issue, let's kind of back up for listeners and tell them uh, originally what these Bivens claims were about and kind of how the Supreme Court has looked at these cases uh, more recently. Sure. So Bivens, initially, the, the issue in, in the original Bivens case was whether you can sue federal agents for violating your constitutional rights directly under the Constitution. And the reason that issue came up 
is because um, for uh, state and local officers, there's a statute, Section 1983, that says you have a right to sue them if they violate your federal constitutional rights. There's no corresponding statute for federal officers. Um, but it would be weird if the federal constitution didn't constrain federal officers. Uh, and so given that the federal uh, federal constitution gives you all these rights, the court said that those rights necessarily implied a remedy. And this is a, a line of reasoning going back all the way to John Marshall. That was 1971. Um, it's now 2022, and the landscape has shifted dramatically. Most notably, as Justice Sotomayor said, the composition of the court has shifted dramatically. And then after that, the Supreme Court began contracting provisions. It began saying that for um, certain classes of defendants, um, certain types of rights, uh, there was no Bivens remedy. And then in Ziegler uh, against Abbasi in 2017, the court let, set forth uh, a new uh, framework for deciding whether there was a Bivens cause of action at all. And it basically said that uh, if it's a new context, courts have to be very careful in extending Bivens. Um, and that brings us to Boulay. So what happened in Boulay was uh, this guy, Boulay is the, the, the hotel owner, the, the plaintiff in the case. He, he owns a hotel on the border of the, of, of, on the America-Canada border. Uh, it's literally called the Smuggler's Inn. Uh, he has a car with a license plate smuggler. <laughs> and sure enough, some smuggling occasionally happens across the border from his inn. So he's known to the immigration authorities. At one point, uh, a, a Border Patrol officer uh, apprehends uh, someone uh, on his property after being told to leave his property. Uh, he uses some force on uh, Mr. Boulay. Uh, and then uh, uh, and then once Mr. Boulay complains to his superiors, he retaliates in a number of ways. He asks the IRS to look into this guy. So Mr. Boulay brings a Fourth Amendment claim for excessive force and a First Amendment claim for retaliation against protected speech. Um, and so the issue was whether there would be a cause of action for each of those rights. Right. So I don't think it would really surprise anybody who's been paying attention to this space, the outcome in this case, uh, or or at least the questions that the court or the framework with which the court is kind of looking at it. That is, you know, with a, a disfavored eye towards these Bivens claims. But one of the arguments that Boulay made was you know, taking everything that the Supreme Court has said recently about the problems with Bivens claims, that if they were to decide them today, they, they would have gone the other way, that this is actually itself just like Bivens. So even if you're not going to extend it to a new context, this is just the same context. Um, and the majority rejects that. But there's an interesting opinion by Justice Gorsuch, who, uh, who concurred, who basically Right, agrees with Boulet. Yeah, this is the same thing and says, therefore, we should overturn Bivens. Um, and so I guess I'm just wondering what what really is the status of Bivens? Does it exist um, or is it kind of really a dead letter? I think it definitely still exists. Uh, the thing that you have to remember is that whatever you see in the Supreme Court, there's that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there's so much more litigation happening in the lower courts. Um, and in, in Ziegler, in, in Abbasi, uh, in Hernandez, in in Egbert, um, in all three cases, the Supreme Court has said that what what if what Bivens claims they have thus far recognized continue to exist. Um, it's only new contexts and special factors that would uh, vitiate a Bivens claim. Um, and so there's there's still so much of that. Bivens itself um, involved uh, basically FBI agents uh, doing a, a drug raid at a man's house, uh, and they they didn't have a warrant and they used excessive force. Now, Boulay, the Supreme Court says, is different because it involves Border Patrol agents and there's a national security angle um, and potentially a foreign policy angle. Now, bracket for one second that that I'm not even sure they believe what they're saying. 
um, if you listen to the oral argument, um, the conservatives themselves were like, are you kidding me? Like, do we have to have a new context for every single one of the 86 federal agents, federal law enforcement agencies? Um, they were skeptical of it. But, you know, when the when it comes time to write the opinion, that's what they write. Um, but still, there's uh, there's a lot of domestic police work uh, done by federal law enforcement agencies that has nothing to do with the border, nothing to do with national security. I mean, FBI agents still do drug raids. So do ATF agents. So do DEA agents. Um, so I think that those kind of claims where excessive force is used there, where agents go in without a warrant, those claims are still alive under Bivens. So a, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Um, first, the United States filed an amicus brief in this case. Uh, the Biden administration argued in it, and they argued on the side of the Border Patrol agent saying this isn't a case where, you know, courts should intervene. And just wondering your thoughts on that. I mean, was that surprising given that it was, you know, um, the Biden administration or is it uh, pretty predictable given that that's kind of behooves the government not to allow these suits? Uh, unfortunately, at least from my perspective, unfortunately, uh, it was it was entirely predictable. Uh, the offices of the Solicitor General has almost always come down uh, in favor of uh, law enforcement. Um, even in cases where they're not involved, like nominally, they're not involved in this case. It's a case against the individual agent, not against the United States. Um, so nominally, they're not involved. But of course, they file an amicus brief, uh, even in cases where it's against a state or local agent. Um, if it goes up to the Supreme Court, they'll file an amicus brief and almost every time in favor of uh, in favor of the police officer. Um, and the reason for this is, as you said, they're the government. They're 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 there to protect the prerogatives of government. Um, I think if if ever they did the other thing and filed an amicus brief going the opposite way, it would be front page news on the New York Times or at least Bloomberg Law. <laughs> so I guess another question, I don't know if this was something that stood out to you, but when I was reading the first few pages of Justice Thomas's majority opinion, there are a lot of facts in there that I didn't. I didn't recognize from the briefing, um, and I really had to dig down into like the redacted appendices and things like that. Um, it just struck me that Justice Thomas, and he does this in a lot of criminal, you know, ca- cases that are adjacent to criminal law. Um, he really gives this robust kind of uh, set of facts, and I just wondered if you if you had any reaction to that. Um, you know, this case came up as a as a summary judgment matter. And so is it really appropriate for Justice Thomas to be including these facts and, when they really don't seem like they're taken as, you know, most favorable to Boulay, which, of course, in this summary judgment context, it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's a thing that he likes to do. And no, I don't think it's particularly appropriate. Um, he did it most sort of recently, notoriously in, in Shin, the, the habeas case. Um, where he, uh, uh, he he took facts that that were contested. They were the facts that the guy was saying had been wrongly decided against him, and, and stated them as as you know God's honest truth. Um, and uh, you know I think the reason that he does this is aesthetic. It builds up a a, a non legal case for the outcome that he's going to reach. Um, you know it, it it certainly helps to say that this guy doesn't have a cause of action that he has a license plate that says smuggler. I mean. You know, even I have to say, come on, man. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in the end, like, does it make a legal difference? No. Why is he adding it? Because it's aesthetically useful. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess pulling away a little bit from the Bivens, I think another area where where you work in um, is really closely tied and is qualified immunity. Um, and this is, you know, a doctrine that's gotten a lot of uh, press lately. It's gotten a lot of attention, calls from both the right and the left to do something about it. I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about how, you know, these Bivens claims and how qualified immunity kind of work together. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, qualified immunity is one of the main areas that public accountability focuses on. And uh, as compared to Bivens, it's it's essentially a different stage in the gauntlet that civil rights plaintiffs have to run before they can have their claim heard on the merits in court. Um, at the very outset of the gauntlet is, is jurisdictional stuff, things like standing, ripeness, political question, justiciability questions. Um, next comes whether there's a cause of action for federal agents. It's Bivens um, for state and local officers. It's Section 1983. Um, after that come the immunities, you know, the, the qualified immunity, the state sovereign immunity, the absolute immunity for prosecutors. Um, those kind of immunities come next. Uh, and then there are still some, some ad hoc things after that, like the heck bar or the Ferris doctrine. And at the end of that, if you manage to get past every single one, like Mario jumping past every, you know, <laughs> pit of, uh, of uh, plants, um, then, uh, then you get to have your claim heard on the merits. Ah, and then, right, and then you actually have to deal with facts and stuff like that um, and prove those, right. yeah, I guess one of the, you know, one of the things that has always confused me about the Supreme Court's reasoning with um, why it would decide Bivens differently today, if it were kind of, you know, considering the issue anew, is that really pushes on this idea of a judge-made doctrine. But that's all qualified immunity is really as well. So, I, I mean, why is there a disconnect? Absolutely, 100%. Uh, and and I, I think that's an excellent question that um, perhaps only Justice Thomas can answer. Um, and, and he said, you know, in, in concurring opinions uh, uh, sometimes uh, that he would revisit the doctrine of qualified immunity um, because it has no anchor in the text. So, you know, there's that. Uh, you can, we can give him that much. But there are five other conservative justices who um, haven't said that. And so, you know, open question for them why atextual doctrines like qualified immunity are OK, especially, by the way, qualified immunity is an atextual doctrine um, derived from a, a congressional text, um, you know, one that Congress can can change easily and has not changed to add qualified immunity, while Bivens is derived from the Constitution, which by its nature isn't going to say things like you have a right to sue for violation of these rights. Um, and, and this is a point that was made in Bivens itself. You know, the nature of a Constitution is that it's not a, 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 a statute. It's not a, a, the United States Code. It's, it's going to be a little more terse, um, and some things are implicit in it. Um, but the reality is uh, we imply immunities uh, and we um, shut our eyes to causes of action. So, uh, you know, how is the reception um, to qualified immunity and qualified immunity claims in the lower courts? Are you feeling like there's a, a little bit more wiggle room for you to make these arguments that, you know, there's really no basis um, for qualified immunity? Or is it a still a pretty hostile landscape? Overall, I mean, you know, on a scale of one to ten, still pretty hostile. Um, but uh, I think less hostile, perhaps, than it was uh, before 2020. Um, there's, uh, there's a few things that have contributed to the shift. One, you know, when a Supreme Court justice, a conservative Supreme Court justice at that says that he has concerns about the foundations of qualified immunity, you know, lower court judges aren't free to say, well, it's atextual, we're not going to apply it. Um, but they are free to, um, to apply it with a, with a bit more skepticism. And I think we've seen that in some cases. Um, and then second, you know, a number of these uh, Trump-appointed judges, rather surprisingly to some, um, you know, come from more of a libertarian 
ideological tradition. Um, and so they're more skeptical of the state. Um, and so you have judges like Don Willette in the Fifth Circuit, uh, who has written extensively on the injustice, both of qualified immunity and the lack of a Bivens remedy. Um, and um, there's there's uh, a few others like him um, uh, across the across the federal courts, some of whom I think are sort of may perhaps perhaps beginning to discover the injustice uh, of these doctrines, uh, but they're convincible, maybe. So, you know, it's it, it remains to be seen how it, how it all shakes out. And there's always the possibility of another concurring or descending opinion from Justice Thomas um, that that makes the ground a little more infirm under qualified immunity. My last question is really what what kind of case would that be in? It seems like there are always qualified immunity of petitions hanging out of the court. There are certainly a couple that are, um, you know, they're the justices are, are looking at them, but they're not, nothing's happening in them. You know, we suspect maybe somebody's writing a dissent because they're not going to grant them. Like, do you see a case that is going to catch the justices' eyes and kind of give them an opportunity to uh, to tackle this issue again? Um, I'm not sure if there are any coming up the pipeline right now. I think the kind of case it would have to be given, and, you know, Justice Thomas really is the linchpin here. He's the conservative, um, I think, the liberal votes are far from a given, um, perhaps a little more um, likely with, with Justice Breyer being replaced with uh, Justice Jackson. Um, but, you know, if, if, if you assume three liberal votes in Justice Thomas, then he's got to bring along one conservative vote with him. Um, and so he's the linchpin. And given how much he cares about the facts and egregious facts, I think it has to be something really egregious, you know, something like that. I think it was the Sixth Circuit case where the guy um, was was prone um, and and not resisting, and they sift a dog on him. Um, and the previous case law had said that if you were sitting up and not resisting, I forget exactly the facts, but something where the distinction is so minute, so technical, uh, and yet a lower court grants qualified immunity. I think it'll have to be something like that. Yeah, we've talked about that case on this podcast before because it is one of those that just really stick out. Where you know the difference between whether or not you can even you know bring your claim in court is whether or not you were laying down or whether or not you were sitting down doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Right. So, Kimberly, the main takeaway I have uh, from that interview is that if you have a license plate that says, I do crimes, uh, you might have a bad time. Um, is that what, <laughs> probably not the main takeaway he wanted me to come away from that, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good one. Um, you know, have something innocuous on your license plate and don't be a smuggler, I guess. Yeah, you know, say, you know, Harry Potter lover or, you know, save the whales, not <laughs> I'm, I'm committing federal crimes. <laughs> I'm committing federal crimes. Um, that one's actually on back order. I have that one through the Virginia DMV. Mm. But we will have the opportunity to get more opinions from the Supreme Court. They have announced that Monday and Wednesday will be opinion days. We've got a lot more to go, so I expect them to hand down quite a few. Uh, just out of curiosity, Kimberly, do you know off the top of your head how many more opinions we have? Well, I know off the top of my head, David, because I was just looking it up because I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> what, do you, are you inside my head? <laughs> so we have got 29 more opinions to go. The court, you know, give or take a few, depending on how you count these up, has issued 32. So we are on the, um, you know, more than halfway done side of this. But, man, that 29, just, there's some big stuff in there. You well, know. Also, it's 29 opinions, and I'm looking uh, at my watch right now. It is June 10th, uh, which means that we have, you know, <laughs> I'm doing some math in my head right now, three weeks left in this month. Usually they finish at the end of the month. Uh, are we, I mean, 
what are the odds that we're going to go into July? It has to be like 99.9%, right? It, it seems likely that we will, just in part because, you know, there are so many and just everything that's going on at the court. Can you imagine that anybody got any work done during later this this week? No. No way. Um, so, you know, I suspect that they will go over. But, you know, just to know that that end of June deadline is an informal deadline. Uh, we suspect that it has to do with the justices wanting to go. And, you know, they do a lot of interacting with the public during the summertime. They go teach. They go to talks and things like that. You know, because the court is not sitting uh, to issue its opinions, that kind of consideration really isn't there. There isn't that kind of time crunch on them. They can just issue these whenever. So even if we do end up going into July, I don't think it'll be that big of a deal. And I, I don't think it will be a precedent for going forward once once things are back to normal at the court. Although back to normal is... <laughs> oh, you! I could see you regretting that even as it was coming out of your mouth saying once things go back to normal. Uh, I don't I don't think anything will ever go back to normal. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> if and when things do go back to normal, you'll hear about it first at news.bloomberglaw.com. That website, once again, news.bloomberglaw.com. See you next week. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.